It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. Jason, I know that you have been very eager to talk about one thing in particular on this show. I think I know what you're going to say, but you have a way on this podcast of engaging in press. Jason, there's a, something really weird happening with your audio. Like what? Like it's picking up. It's spiking the audio. It like got all distorted. Um, can we restart? Yeah, let's see if it happens again. Do you want me to refresh my screen? No, I think, I mean, I don't know. I don't know why that happened, but maybe instead of doing that intro, you should just kick things off. <laughs> um, well, okay, now I feel weird. <laughs> In the research rabbit hole of the internet, I feel like there are so many corners and caves to spelunk and explore, especially during this time of quarantine and lockdown and COVID. There certainly has been a lot of, I suppose, new avenues and pathways that both Whitney and I have gone down in terms of not just scientific research, trying to figure out the actual workings of COVID and some of the scientific implications. But one thing that got released recently that seemed to generate in the mainstream, kind of like a shrug kind of reaction was the federal government, the United States government, the Department of Defense, acknowledging and confirming that they have not only video evidence, but physical evidence of unidentified flying objects. Now, this is fascinating to me, Whitney, for several reasons. Number one, I've been semi-obsessed with astronomy and the idea of extraterrestrial life and uh, the historical ramifications of aliens and alien craft perhaps visiting humanity for millennia. You know, some of the theories surrounding the building of the pyramids and Stonehenge and some of the ancient monuments that we really don't have a concrete explanation for how they were built. So when this information came out recently and the federal government confirmed it, most recently through a New York Times article, I feel like buried almost, not intentionally buried, but like, okay, so everything's kind of batshit crazy and there's this crazy virus going around and there's all these conspiracy theories and maybe a satanic pedophilia Hollywood ring of elites destroying the world and and also the election stuff. And we've been so bombarded with so much craziness that it felt like the UFO confirmation was like, oh yeah, of course. And I'm like, are you got, what are you talking about? The federal government just confirmed the existence of UFOs, confirmed it. And fascinatingly enough, the former Senate majority leader, Harry Reid, who was on the head of a task force investigating un- unidentified flying objects and potential alien technology here on Earth, you know, he had said that he has been briefed on reports. This is fascinating as hell, Whitney, that not only are there branches of the government he believes that are in possession of 
materials that are not of this earth and cannot be explained with earthly origin, but that some of these materials, likely from crashed crafts, are in the private sector, meaning that corporations or private individuals have recovered materials that are not of earthly origin, as he said. And that was the thing that got me going with was not just the government. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if they already had levitation devices and they were working on teleportation. God knows what technology the world governments have. But the idea of alien materials, metals, non-earthly origin, God knows what, that private people or corporations might possess, that fascinates the hell out of me. Well, this is a good opportunity to bring up a little fact about my childhood, teenage years specifically, that I don't think you and I have ever discussed, Jason. And I feel like you're going to be really fascinated by this. I feel like my heart just started beating a little bit faster because <laughs> I have no idea what you are about to say. And I'm well, also excited and a little bit like, oh my God, is Whitney about to tell me she got fucking abducted? Is that what's about to happen? Holy shit. <laughs> I mean, not that I know of, but <laughs> I too was really into astronomy growing up. Astronomy? Not yes. astrology. Yeah, astrology yes. okay, is, the, to, is the astrological <laughs> I want to make sure I said the right word because Absolutely. I'm actually fascinated by both, but astronomy as well. And I remember seeing the movie Contact with Jodie Foster. Love that movie came out in 1997 and mm -hmm. I was like wow I was so fascinated by that and then I got interested in Carl Sagan and I actually was like maybe I want to go to Cornell where Carl Sagan I think he taught there right right do you remember this I'm looking this up right now maybe yeah I think he taught I think he taught at Cornell oh I didn't know that I've only ever read Carl Sagan's books I've never actually gone into like his I history. know that he's involved I mean there's like an institute there but anyways, I was just super, super fascinated by this. But here's the cool thing is that I'm not going to say exactly what town I grew up in just for privacy because I went to a really, I grew up in a very small town. I will say, I guess if somebody really wanted to figure this out, they could. But my town, it doesn't operate anymore. But imagines part of it still exists there and who knows what's going on. But there is an observatory in my town that was really well known. And it was one of the largest optical telescopes east of Texas. And Whoa, really? they did uh, research on like comets and asteroids as well as they had a SETI. S-E-T-I program there, and they were searching for laser pulses transmitted deliberately in our direction by another civilization in my hometown. And so we got to go there. Like They would open it so up wait. for anybody to go for certain nights, kind of like they do in Los Angeles at the Griffith Observatory, which is pretty fun. And they'd have like telescope nights and stuff like that, but they also had some sort of program that I was involved with for a little bit where you could like get more involved and learn more and like be part of it. And so I used to do a lot of that stuff growing up. And I, it's interesting because I remember this one defining moment where I was in one of those programs and I was so enthusiastic, 
But researcher that was there was like this old curmudgeon type. And he kind of like <laughs> dissuaded all of my interests. Like, I just remember the way he spoke to me was kind of like, oh, you silly young child. Like, I don't know. It was something, it was just like a vibe that like really turned me off. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm not that interested in this anyways. Like, I don't want to be like crank around cranky old men like him, <laughs> you know, because. Was he just like, was he just like, oh, silly goose, aliens aren't maybe, a real thing? Or like, <laughs> I think I was just like, oh, I want to help discover something or whatever it was. Like, I was just so fascinated by everything they were doing with the telescopes and searching. And maybe I was like interested in the extraterrestrial life and all that. And he just was very dismissive. So it was a bummer. But I feel like there was more that happened there than anyone really knows. Because it was part of Harvard University. And yeah, I'm looking up an article right here from 2006. And it was like a, a big new step in the search for ET. And that's when they, I guess that's when they launched the optical SETI telescope there. And all these scientists, engineers, and officials, space, space enthusiasts came out. And it was like this whole thing. But I don't think it's operating there anymore. After all this time, it was like a pretty big deal and it was all happening in this small town. And it's kind of reminds me of um, that show Stranger Things. Like, what if there was just all sorts of crazy things happening in my town that no one really knew? Because it was like tucked away in the woods up on a hilltop, you know, and you had to go up this long driveway to get up there. <laughs> so it's definitely like the making of some movie or television show. It's interesting to me because I feel like the collective human imagination has been so transfixed on this subject for so long that, again, I kind of go back into looking at some of the the history of human civilization that has been either altered or changed or buried in some cases. And at the risk of sounding conspiratorial, that's not my aim here. I just think it's fascinating that there are, going back to it, Whitney, there are clearly such a deep fascination with ancient human civilization of looking toward the stars. And of course, certain Toltec civilizations like the Mayans, for instance, having such advanced, I suppose, calendars and things that were aligned with the movement of the stars and them being able to track celestial objects. I guess all this is to say that I feel like in our deep, deep subconscious that humanity has been obsessed with this idea of life on other planets for millennia, that by the end of 2020, when we're recording this very episode, if we just happen to kind of like, oh, by the way, the aliens showed up, I wouldn't be surprised. I would be delighted and excited and fascinated, but I don't think I'd be surprised. It really depends on the circumstances, though, because if you watch some of these movies like War of the Worlds, there are certainly some circumstances in which you would not be delighted. That's true. <laughs> That's true. But I suppose I'm looking at this as a glass half full that, <laughs> that if the aliens decided to make themselves known. Also, given the complete surreality and bizarreness of this year that we are living in, that also wouldn't surprise me. You know, like, oh, by the way, and also, again, going back to that article that came out, this was four days ago in the New York Times, 
of like, oh, by the way, yeah, we're confirming the existence of these crafts, that the nonchalance that was met with that announcement, right? It was just like the media didn't really talk about it. It wasn't showing up. It was like, oh, yeah, by the way, they're around. It's fascinating to me. What would the collective reaction or response be if all of a sudden breaking news, they're here? It's like, yeah, duh. (laughs) I'd be more fascinated with A, what they look like, B, what is the nature of their technology? And three, most importantly, what is their real intent by proverbially speaking, lifting the veil and making themselves known? You know, my question would be, if a race of beings was intelligent enough and technologically sophisticated enough to come here from wherever, why would they do it? My question, and I know you're the questioner, Whitney, but my curiosity would be like, okay, why and why now? You know, I would want to sit down and interview. Maybe we get one of them on a podcast. It's interesting too, because there's this deep human fascination with secrets and conspiracies and trying to figure out what the reality is. And right. I think a lot of people are drawn to that because it feels maybe like an escape sometimes or life feels so mysterious. Maybe it it's more of like life might be meaningless. So let's try to like create more meaning or what if life is actually really simple? So if we make it more complex, we'll feel more satisfied with it. And it's really interesting. Similar to my perspective on most things, I see it from the gray area where I wouldn't be surprised either, Jason. But I also would be like, if I found out that aliens didn't exist or whatever, or they never came to visit or UFOs weren't like all that stuff, like if it wasn't real, I wouldn't be surprised. And if it is real, I wouldn't be surprised either. I mean, I kind of feel like it it has to be true that there's other beings living in the solar system somewhere. It feels almost too much in our ego to believe that we're the only planet with life and yeah. with with yes. the tools that we've developed and all of this. And, you know, we have a lot of ignorance about it, just like we have a lot of ignorance about our own planet and our own species. Like there's still so much about ourselves and our brains that we don't understand. So of course there's got to be parts of the universe that we haven't fully explored or understand and like beyond our own solar system. Like there just could be so much. And yet, What's really interesting to me is we can't even agree fully on whether the earth is round or flat. You know what I mean? Oh, boy. Like that conversation. Or like if there's a Loch Ness monster or the the Yeti or, you know, Bigfoot, whatever. Like people can't even agree if that's real or not. And that's on our own planet. So there's so much confusion and misinformation and disagreements and conspiracies right here. Then, of course, like anything beyond this planet is going to be even more mysterious to us. And it also reminds me of, I think it was in a book that I'm, one of the books I've been reading recently was talking about the cognitive shift that kids go through when they realize that Santa Claus isn't real or (laughs) Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy or all these like Oh man. Stories. Many of us, not all of us are told, but many kids are raised with that belief system. And then at a certain age, the parents come clean and they say, this actually isn't real. And I was reading this the other day thinking, gosh, it's actually kind of messed up that we do that to kids. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree. Like, why do we feel the need to lie about some like fictional thing happening? <gasps> and then there's like a lot of nostalgia t- tied into that. And, you know, for me growing up Christian, like Christmas time feels magical. And like to this day, my mom still like says things like, oh, this came from Santa. Like as adults, like that came continued on. And, and like, there's something sweet about the Easter bunny, unless you look up the really creepy photos. Have you ever seen those? There's like a series of really creepy Easter bunny photos, like people dressed up as Easter bunny for to pose for pictures and terrified because the bunny is so disturbing. If the listener has not seen this before, we'll link to this in the show notes at wellevator.com, which is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. If you go to the show notes podcast section of our website, we'll include that in this episode because it's actually pretty amusing. But anyways, it's just interesting to me, all these different myths. And there is an innocence and a magic to it, I think a lot of people believe. But I mean, I don't have a strong memory of when I learned that the Tooth Fairy, Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, and anything else that I heard about wasn't real. Like, I don't remember that being a huge deal. But what if it was a huge deal and you find out that your parents or, or parental figures were lying to you for many years of your life and tricking you to believe in something? And not only is it like a break in trust, but it's also like the magic is taken away from you. And that's kind of disturbing. So I wonder if adults are kind of like yearning for more of that magic or yearning to believe in something. You know, I remember really wanting to believe that the Loch Ness Monster was real. And I felt like kind of sad when I saw a lot of evidence like convincing me that it's not real. You know, like I just thought it was so cool. This like mysterious creature in the water but it's been debunked, in my opinion. And that's just like, I guess even now, there's still room in my head that's like, maybe it is true. <laughs> like, maybe it does exist, right? There's still part of me that would be like really excited if the Loch Ness Monster was real. I think that, yeah, it's like that clinging to the magic of it. And so I think aliens, extraterrestrials, whatever you want to call them, are, are different because they're not on this planet, unlike everything else I just mentioned. But I think that a lot of us just like kind of hope it's true because it it gives us something outside of our day-to-day lives to fantasize about and hope for. I, first of all, just want to talk about, <laughs> I want to talk about my logical dissection of the Loch Ness Monster thing, because as a child, I was obsessed with dinosaurs, Whitney. In fact, the first thing that I remember wanting to be when I grew up was a paleontologist, right? I talked about that in episode two about my journey. Yeah, that I was so obsessed with dinosaurs and prehistoric artifacts and bones and all of that. And so, of course, as a result, when the possibility that whatever it's supposed to be, a brontosaurus, I think, is living in the loch that it was like, oh, okay, this is dope. There could be a dinosaur in this lock that I need to go visit. But then my logical brain, I remember as a kid, was like, but if they need to reproduce, there would need to be two of them. 
And there's nothing about two of them. So if there's not two of them, is it an asexual brontosaurus? Because that makes no sense. Maybe the dinosaurs were asexual. How the fuck do we know? We don't have enough DNA to study their reproductive habits. Like, do you see where the mind goes? It's like, but if there's only one monster in the lock, how does it reproduce? So I kind of talked myself out of that fantasy a long time ago because biologically it didn't make sense. But again, not knowing the reproductive capabilities of ancient dinosaurs, who am I to say? Could be asexual. But it is interesting you make that link between our childhood desire for fantasy and magic and the unexplainable and how enrapturing that is. And I think right now, not just the idea of alien life, I mean, specifically this article I'm mentioning and all this kind of slow disclosure from the government doesn't really talk about recovering, say, alien bodies or actual alien creatures. It talks about the technology, right? So as an offshoot, it's interesting because they kind of spun this article to just focus on the technology in the sense that, and I didn't know this, this is super interesting, Whitney, to kind of take it back there, that recently, I don't know how long this has been going on, but Marco Rubio, the senator from Florida, was talking about, he's the chairman on the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence is increasingly concerned that there are a lot of reports, doesn't say how many, that there have been unidentified aircraft that have been hovering over American military bases recently, and that the government was desperately trying to figure out what these crafts were and who they were, and that there's concern that China or Russia may or may not have recovered some of this crashed alien technology and are using it. Now, this is all conjecture, right? But it's interesting that, of course, we would make the possibility of alien technology a political thing. And if there is any truth to this, then maybe there is some sort of arms race. You know what I'm saying? Like between the superpowers, right? China, Russia, we think about South Korea, we think about the US, like these countries that are trying to be the world's superpower that if any of them were in possession of advanced technology, that would give them a leg up politically, and especially in terms of the possibility of war, right? I mean, the mind goes to crazy places of what may be out there, what they may actually be doing that we don't know about. That just fascinates me, just, I guess, to daydream about. Much like the Loch Ness Monster or the Yeti or the Bigfoot, I daydream like, what if they already have teleportation? And what if we already have time travel? I mean, that's just my fantasy child brain going, but what if? What if those things already exist? And like I said, that is like the fantasy child brain. And it feels like nostalgia in a way or reverting to that childlike wonder to sit there and daydream about all these different possibilities. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. I find conspiracy theories super fascinating. They remind me a lot of reading a fictional book. It's just kind of fun to believe something and to feel the magic in there. And I'm not necessarily looking at it from a cynical perspective. That's not my desire. But it's interesting to examine it from two different perspectives, right? It's it's okay, what well why does it feel good to believe that these things might be true? And A, as I mentioned, there's that nostalgia because we used to love to do that stuff as kids. And I think we do that as kids as like a, a way of figuring life out. Like maybe we feel so small or insignificant, out of control as children, and it might help us cope through life if we can just try to figure out what life means. And that's part of that journey of 
evolution is like, okay, well, what's real and what's not real, you know? And it's interesting too, because we're often really encouraged to believe in magic as kids. And our parents seem to enjoy that. Like even when you think about Disney and the movies that you can watch and going to Disney World or Disneyland, any of those theme parks and immersing yourself in that magical experience. And I I see a lot of adults that love to do that even when they don't have children. And even Disney aside, I think some adults may enjoy the experience of parenting because that allows them to continue to experience childlike wonder. Yeah. By reading the fantasy books and going to Disney or theme parks in general or or playing and just like immersing ourselves in that. And I think grandparents do as well. And so I think there's this big desire in our lives as as maybe part of our way of coping with life. It just feels good to indulge in this or to, you know, watch TV shows and put yourself in that world or read books or listen to podcasts or audiobooks and and just these forms of escape we have through story and how appreciative we are when we're told a really good story. So I just kind of wonder from a psychological standpoint, is that why it's so appealing to either believe in or reflect on all of those things? And it's almost like it takes you outside of yourself for a moment. You know, it also reminds me of how things felt at the beginning of COVID or even now, several months into it, there'll be times where it just feels so intense. And that intensity to me brings up like fear as well as like I'm just enjoying the distraction from the rest of my life. I felt like at the beginning of COVID, it was like, oh, we're all in this together. I'm not alone. And we're all staying at home. I'm not the only one who works from home. And we're all struggling. I'm not the only one struggling. And there was just like this sense of going online and reading the articles and seeing the videos and all of that and feeling like a bond. And also like I could take a break from my personal life and make it more about something else. I felt the same way at the beginning of the current Black Lives Matter movement with the passing of George Floyd and and Breonna Taylor and and some of these other people, it was like there was something really intense about it that was simultaneously horrific and it brought up a lot of negative emotions, but it also made me feel so close to people. And a a lot of people talked about 9-11 in the same way. It was like, this was horrible. Like when I think about 9-11, I mostly just think just a simple thought will bring me back to that day and physically that tension and that fear and like all those emotions that came up for me. You know, I think a lot of us still store that trauma in our bodies and we will with COVID as well. But I also remember how much that brought us together. And I think when we are brought together through a traumatic experience or through these fantasies, it is a form of escapism. It's like we can put our own personal struggles on hold to either be part of the global struggle or the local struggle, the group struggle, whatever that is, or we put our struggles on hold to escape into some sort of a fantasy. Either way, we can get outside of ourselves. 
And I think I that's love- part of the appeal there. Yeah. I love that perspective, Whitney, because I think that from a mental health perspective, and when I say this, I don't just mean people that are struggling with a mental illness. I think that people are attempting to, through the uncertainty, through the chaos, through the daily or multiple times every day, news reports and statistics and studies changing, you know, the the amount of information that we are being bombarded with on a daily basis can feel drastic and overwhelming. You and I have both talked about how we've tried to regulate for our mental health and our emotional health, the amount and type of information we've been taking. And I think that's very important. But when I say this, I think that what I'm observing is something that Alex Ebert, he's uh, he's the lead, lead singer of Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. He has a lot of really interesting viewpoints politically and sociologically on what's happening. And uh, I follow him on Instagram and we've DM'd a little bit. I actually want to have him on the podcast at some point because he also talks about mental illness a lot. Anyway, he had this perspective that a lot of the new age people, if you will, the people in the conscious community, the people that are in the self-help, the wellness world, a lot of the people that probably listen to this podcast may, may or may not fall in this category. But in the industry we're in, his viewpoint similarly in the psychological management of this is that by being able to explain everything, right? By having conspiracy theories, by having explanations of, you know, who Trump really is and what he's doing. And as I mentioned before, kind of the 5G thing and the vaccinations and the microchipping and the Hollywood satanic pedophilia ring. I mean, all of this stuff is, he explained it as it's people's attempt to create their own reality. Cause that's what we've been told for so long, right? We've talked about manifestation. We've talked about the new age thought leaders talking about you create your own reality and that there's so much cognitive dissonance that ruptures people's view of reality at the beginning of this, because his whole thing was, if you have a belief system that you create your own reality, that people were so knocked off kilter psychologically of like, wait, if I create my own reality, then why did I manifest a virus? Why did I manifest a super virus? And that people were so psychologically disturbed by that, that something arrived they didn't have control over, that by trying to explain reality via conspiracy theories, it's their attempt at saying, no, actually, I do control my own reality because I can explain all of this, and now I feel secure, and now I feel certain about the outcome, and I can go back to my latent belief system that, no, all is well. We're not in chaos. Nothing's uncertain. We have control. All is well. And I think it is interesting how people are trying to psychologically dissect the situation because as we've talked about in previous episodes, discomfort, uncertainty, and chaos really fucks people up psychologically if they don't know how to handle it. Absolutely. In fact, I pulled up a few articles about this and these are psychologists' perspectives on why people cling to conspiracy theories, especially during uncertain times. Yeah, go for it. And there's a lot of interesting points made in this. So I'll link to at least one of these articles in the show notes. So again, at wellevator.com, you'll find all the resources we mentioned if you want to dive deeper into this. But one that I find super fascinating, and this actually makes a lot of sense, especially given some of the people that Jason and I have discussed because we feel kind of triggered by them at times. I And I honestly do get triggered by some of the conspiracy theory perspectives, right? And this actually explains some of it for me. 
which is that conspiracy theories can make a person feel special. And it's part of this person's need for uniqueness, meaning that conspiracy theories represent unconventional and potentially scarce information that refer to secret knowledge or information. And that, by definition, is not accessible to everyone. Otherwise, it would not be a secret and it'd be a well-known fact. And that people who believe in conspiracy theories can feel special in a positive sense because they may feel like they are more informed than others about important social and political events. And I've noticed there is a sense of like the ego and the narcissism in some of these conspiracy yes. theory posts, especially on social yes. media. 100%. And like this elitist or you're either with us or against us. And like, if you don't believe this information, then you're a fool. You're the idiot. Like, you know, there's that term like, wake up. You know, a lot of this, like, I'm awake, I'm aware. And if you're not believing the same thing I'm believing, then you must be asleep and you must be in ignorance. And, you know, you must be like on the side of somebody that I'm against. And there's this kind of like element of you're either with us or without us or, you know. It's an us versus them mentality. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And, and right. that I find very disturbing because a lot of the people that say those things are also simultaneously talking about unity and how they're like, we're, you know, we're all in this together, brother. We're all one. And yet they'll say those things. And I'm like, what you are completely contradicting yourself right now. If you really believe that we are all equal and that we are all deserving and that we are family and, you know, using those terms like brother. <laughs> and yet you make these statements that basically exclude people or make it seem like you're holier than thou because you have certain information and, you know, hey, if you really pay attention, you'll have this information too. Or, if, you know, if you take my course or download my PDF or sign up for my tribe, like, let's do this together. And again, even that tribal mentality is not about unity. No, it's not. It's leveraged as a way to create division. And that contradiction you're talking about, Whitney, it, first of all, I love hearing you get, you get fired up. I just want to state that, like, like you feeling obviously very charged around this. And I think it's for good reason. It's because there are colleagues and friends and acquaintances that we know that are delivering some messages, and it's absolutely confusing. Well, let's not it's, use the term colleagues because we don't literally work with them. That, okay, that's true. Let's um, clarify what you mean by that. <laughs> acquaintances in the crossover industries in which we reside, I suppose. There's a lot of overlap, I guess, in in different interests and things that, that we talk about in the health and wellness and mental health space. But I think you're right on in terms of what you commented on about the ego, right? Is that what I see, and I see this in myself too, not in expressed in the same way, but there are, I suppose, callings where I feel the desire to be really generous and super open and being of service and creating unity in the world, you know, whether that's, I don't know, you know, going out and feeding the homeless or, or going to the protests we've gone to or, or trying to learn from people of different backgrounds. Like we can give a million examples, but then there's this ego part of me that's like, yeah, but what about money and your career and this stuff? It, my point in all this is it seems that they're part of the human struggle is that I think our spirit, our soul, 
acknowledges that we are one, acknowledges the humanity and the the deep connection we share with one another. But then the individual ego is like, yeah, sorry, fuck it. I got to pay the bills, protect my family, hold it down, make sure I'm safe, make sure I'm secure. And it seems that there might be an inner battle with a lot of the people we're talking about where on one side, there's a part of their soul or their higher self that believes in unity. But then there is a part of the ego that's like, yeah, but I'm actually like more evolved than you. And you should probably get more evolved too, because like, I've got this secret information and you shouldn't be sheeple and you shouldn't be a muggle and wake the fuck up because the new world is coming and y'all don't want to get left behind. And it just seems to me that the overarching theme is soul versus ego. Interesting. It's really fascinating to observe that. This is not to say that, again, whatever this person believes isn't true. I mean, this is part of narcissism. Like who even just like, unless you're presented with something that's truly black and white, most of life is quite mysterious. So who am I or anybody to say whether something's right or wrong, true or not, like true or false. I actually prefer to be in that gray area because you might be able to convince me and pull me into one side or another, but I tend to want to stay in that gray area because I feel a little bit it's like a balance for me and it feels safer to be considerate of different viewpoints. I just feel like my viewpoints change so much over time. As I've said before, very openly, I'm very committed to the vegan way of living, but not so much so that I wouldn't consider maybe if there was some big reason that convinced me not to be vegan anymore. Like in my point, I'm not like, at a, a point in my life, at least right now, and I also change a lot because I've my perspective has changed, but I'm willing to be proven wrong and I'm willing to adapt and change. And I don't feel comfortable being too rigid in my life because I see life changing in me and outside of me all the time. And so I'd rather be fluid then try to stick myself in the same place and be stuck and not and like resist that flow. Because if life is constantly changing and we're learning new information all the time, then I'm going to be forced into it at some point. So it's easier to go with the flow than it is to be in resistance to the flow. And that's part of why the gray area seems to be part of the flow for me because it's kind of like when you're presented with new information, it can radically shift the way that you're thinking. I mean, the veganism, again, is something that I, I haven't always been vegan. So if I was willing to change my life entirely in that way, like who's to say that I won't again at some point? And I think this is part of it is a lot of people enjoy trying to cling on to something, a belief system. And they might not always be able to hold on to that because of the way life is constantly evolving. And so that's why, you know, when it comes to UFOs, like, why would I have this standpoint of completely believing them in them or not believing in them at all? Again, as I said earlier, I'm just like, okay, great. <laughs> I mean, even if let's say aliens came to Earth and it was like an Independence Day or a War of the Worlds type of scenario, like, what am I going to do? <laughs> I'm going to try to fend for my life. But like, we get destroyed as a human race. Like, that's just what happens. Like, <laughs> there's only so much that you can do at that point. It's good to know uh, where Will Smith lives. I'm sure that he would be very useful in that situation for some reason. 
Will Smith seems to have been trained for this. I'm kidding. But he does have a really nice property. It'd be a great place to go down if we do get invaded by aliens. I think overarching what we're talking about, Whitney, is like we're trying to explain things that we don't have enough evidence to explain yet. And the biggest challenge that I'm having, you talked about getting triggered, right? I have been observing that I've been getting triggered, not necessarily because of the content of what people are believing, but more the way that it's being presented, as you alluded to. And it's taking something that is theoretical or conjecture or a belief system and spinning it or presenting it as if it is factual hard truth. That's the challenge that I have. And I've been trying really hard to have a lot of compassion for these people. But I'm like, what you are talking about is a theory. It's a belief system. But a theory and a belief does not equal truth. It does not equal fact. Those are two very, those are very different things. And one of the most recent blog posts we have on on wellevator.com, we actually have dozens and dozens of blog posts and uh, are going to be adding more soon. You can go to wellevator.com. Again, it's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And one of the recent blog posts is uh, the truth will not set you free. Truth in itself, I think, is an opportunity and a way shower to say, okay, here's a new version of reality that was not disclosed to you before. Here are the facts. Here are things that are outlying truth. And then you have a choice whether or not to adapt to that new truth, that new reality, or stay the same. But my issue, again, is belief and theory masquerading as truth. And through ego and people's desire for certainty and control and creating their own reality, they're really trying to convince themselves that what they believe is true. And it may be true for them, right? What we're talking about now, Wit, I think is someone's individual truth, which can be something very simple of like, and this is an ever-changing thing, is like, yeah, my whatever, Jean jacket is my favorite piece of clothing. It's a ridiculous example. Like that's a personal truth versus say a universal truth, which is gravity is real on planet earth. Gravity is real in the universe, but on planet earth, gravity is a real thing. Okay, cool. But I guess, again, my point is just that I would like to see people becoming a little more humble in their approach to their perspectives rather than everyone claiming to have the truth with a capital T. That's very frustrating for me, and I'm trying not to be as frustrated by it. Yeah, and I I think it's also, we have to be careful in talking about this too, because it's not like we're positioning ourselves as better than somebody who believes in a conspiracy theory either. Not at all. Not at all. it's It's not meant to say we're right, they're wrong. It's just that we disagree, but we're willing to listen. I think that's part of it. I mean, there's certainly times where like, I just don't want to listen because you can mute people on social media or unfollow them. Like there's, there's nothing wrong with that if that doesn't serve you in a positive way. But if somebody were to come to me and want to talk about these things, I actually find it really fascinating. (laughs) Like I like listening to those things. What I don't like, and, and just to be clear, is that when somebody's trying to convince you of something and like disprove your way of thinking, well, yes, that's part yes. of the challenge here. In one of the other articles that I pulled up, which is about, and by the way, I'm fairly certain that we did another episode about this because I remember looking up some of this information about conspiracy theories. So for anyone who's listened to a lot of our episodes, you may have heard us talk about similar things before. We I don't think we've talked about UFOs, but we have talked about conspiracy theories, and we'll link to that other episode 
in this article, which came out in May, it's about why the pandemic is turning so many people into conspiracy theorists. And again, I will link to this in the show notes. And one point that's interesting is that Conspiracy theories stem from the human tendencies to look for patterns and broader meanings in the world. And this goes back to what I was saying about childhood. I think as kids, we just because we are human and that's how our brains work, like we are looking for meaning. We're looking to understand things. This is part of our survival as a species, right? If we can understand life, it feels safer, it feels more comfortable. But this article believes that this way of thinking can turn toxic when our pattern detector is overtuned. So meaning like you're so focused on all sorts of random things. And this actually reminds me of a show I've been watching on HBO. I mentioned at least once before called I'll Be Gone in the Dark. And it's about this woman who got really into a very famous... He was a rapist and a murderer and he, in, in Southern California and Northern California, too. Serial killer? That's the term. Thank you. Serial killer. <laughs> serial okay, killer. got it. And it's a fascinating story. I mean, serial killers are also fascinating, especially if they've never been caught. And so part of what's interesting about the show and similar shows or any show about an unsolved case is really interesting and I can see why people get drawn to it. And what can happen is a lot of people become obsessed with the process of looking for the patterns and the broader meanings and how can I solve the case? How can I crack the case? But as I was watching the show, I, there's two episodes yet that I have not seen. So it's, I haven't gotten to the end, but a huge part of this is watching a number of people on this show trying to figure out, piece together all these random things and what they mean. And can they crack the case? Can they figure out who did it? And there's part of me that's watching this in awe and thinking, wow, what commitment. And then there's some people that are doing this for their entire lives, trying to figure out something that they may never have an answer to. And is that fulfilling or not? Like, is it the process? It's kind of like anything else. Is it that journey and the process of trying to understand something and never getting an answer? Like, we, I think about my grandparents. If UFOs and aliens were talked about more as something factual versus a conspiracy theory in my lifetime, I think about like, gosh, it's kind of a shame that my grandfather wasn't around. <laughs> you know, his life did not overlap with that period of time and all these people that just simply are not alive during that anymore. Or it might not even happen in our lifetime, Jason. You know, we may not be alive to see some of these truths that happen. And well, if we're looking back from if we had any hindsight over our lives after we pass away, like, are we okay with that, with being on this journey of never getting an answer to something during our lifetime? I guess that's kind of interesting as well. I feel like I'm really okay without being able to explain some very fundamental aspects of life. And probably the most fundamental is, what are we? Where did we come from? What is humanity's purpose? I have some ideas of what that might be, but do I have the hard, concrete, unassailable truth of what that is? No, but we look to spirituality or religion or the concept of God or universe or oneness or 
an innumerable number of belief systems, religions, theories, explanations of at the core, maybe which is the biggest questions of all, like I mentioned, of what are we? We call ourselves humans. We call ourselves homo sapiens, but we don't actually know where we come from. We don't actually know on the deepest level. We don't. We have explanations and theories, as I said, religions, spiritual perspectives, but we don't actually know. And maybe for some people, that is a massively disturbing thing. Alan Watts, who we've mentioned on the podcast before, has a perspective about why humanity is so destructive. His kind of take on it in how humanity has separated itself from nature and therefore has sought to dominate and control the natural world is we don't know what we are, who we are, or where we came from. We don't feel like we belong in nature. Many of us don't feel like we even belong here on earth. We're confused and bewildered and trying to make up explanations for it. But because on some very deep subconscious level, we feel other than, we feel alien on our own planet to some degree because we don't have a hard explanation of who we are, why we're here, where we came from. We are flailing uncontrollably trying to make a sense of it all. And through that systems of domination and control, that's how we're trying to do it. And I think in many ways, he's correct. I think that for a lot of people, there's a subconscious terror of not knowing who we are or why we're here or where we came from. And we're like, well, we may as well just try and dominate or control things while we're here, you know, try and figure it out. Not necessarily applicable to every single human, of course, but I think that Alan Watts was in a really interesting ballpark when he talked about that. Yeah. And going back to the UFO thing and what you mentioned earlier, Jason, about like how if it was true, if it was proven, like maybe we would be kind of nonchalant. Like we're in this time where things seem so weird and abnormal that something that big could could be less of a big deal because we already feel like life feels surreal. And then there's also the side that maybe we are so distracted by COVID and Black Lives Matter and all the other crazy things going on in the world that like UFOs don't seem like that big of a deal anymore because we have more important things to put our focus on or too much to put our focus on, right? And so it also makes me wonder, like, what else is going on in the world that we just don't even have the mental space to prioritize? And some people believe that, speaking of conspiracy theories, that, like, COVID is a distraction. I mean, we have this huge election coming up. And is COVID adding towards the favor of one party or another? Is this, you know, some people feel like maybe it was all timed out or whatever. And I don't know about that. But again, being in the gray area, I also wouldn't be surprised if things are brought up to our attention in the media in order to manipulate us to think or feel certain things or to distract us from other things that are happening. Mm, it's so, it's Again, Whitney, I go back to the answer that I feel is most true for me. I don't know. And the most honest place I can come from is that, is I don't know. This morning when I woke up, one of the first thoughts on my mind before I started going on social media and opening the computer and recording this episode with you was keep your mind open, keep your heart open. That's all. Just, okay. The best thing you can do right now and what feels most real to me is keeping my mind open, keeping my heart open and saying, I don't know, because I don't have a desire to explain what's happening. I don't have a desire to be like, I'm the one with the truth and everyone follow me. I'm the great white hope. I'm the Pied Piper. Everyone else is full of shit. I don't have any desire to do any of those things. And to back up Whitney's point, we're not 
attempting to throw anyone under the bus here. Even though I get annoyed with them sometimes, it's they're entitled to their opinion and their theory and their belief system, what they think is true. But you know, Whitney, you may share a similar sentiment that through all of this exploration that we do on this podcast, ultimately, this podcast is an exploration and an experiment. Whitney and I do not claim to be experts or gurus or leaders on any particular subject. We're exploring and questioning and staying open as much as we possibly can, because I think that's, to me, the most honest space to come from, especially right now, is I don't know what the truth is, but I'm going to stay open. I'm going to stay open-minded, stay open-hearted. And I'm just saying it, I guess, publicly and saying it to you, Whitney, because I want to remind myself to remain in that space because that that space to me feels real. It feels authentic to me. Yeah, I like that too. And and that's actually one ongoing piece of advice that I see come up. When you don't agree with somebody, you can simply just be open-minded and curious about their perspective instead of debating it. And you can come from a place of trying to understand them Or, I mean, I actually really liked our guest episode that's coming up this week with Brandy, where she openly says, like, I'm going to judge you, but then we'll get through it. And that was like a big thing, how she talks to her children. So stay tuned, listener. If the episode is not out yet, it'll be out this coming Friday. And if you are listening in the future beyond the release date of this episode, uh, you can check and see if Brandy's episode is up. It's interesting perspective to me because, you know, some people are just judgmental and they like being judgmental. That feels comfortable to them and that's how they operate. And yet you can be judgmental temporarily. And then once you move past the judgment, then maybe you can have an open mind, you know? And I actually liked that because for me, I try not to be judgmental, but sometimes we simply are like it. We might not be able to help it, right? Like we're talking about getting triggered by certain people. I can feel triggered and annoyed by them. And then I can start to observe my feelings. And if I have the opportunity, I can engage in a conversation with that person who acts differently or says things differently than me or has a different belief system. And I would like that from back from them. You know, I would rather somebody be open-minded with me, even if they don't agree with me or if they feel triggered or judging towards me. It'd be really nice if despite those feelings, <laughs> they were willing to have a conversation instead of a debate or dismissing me entirely. So I think that's the big lesson here is to stay curious, stay open-minded, realize that whatever your perspectives are on the world, like they may not be based in facts but that's okay. And most of us don't really know what's going on anyway. It's like, yeah, that's real for real. Actually, very few facts of life. I mean, some of them are that like Jason mentioned gravity and facts that we are going to die and we don't know when it will be and we're not guaranteed anything. And aside from that, gosh, it's hard to even think about that many facts that <laughs> can't be changed or shift over time. And even research can be found faulty. And there's so many biases. So having an an open mind and an open heart and moving through life that way, if that works for you, great. And if you want to stay rigid in your perspective, like that's okay too. That's just where you're at right now and see how it works for you. See how it feels. We all have our different motivations for our behaviors and our outlooks. Guess we'll find out more about UFOs as time goes on. 
I'm excited to see what's going to unfold. I mean, we know that phrase, may you live in interesting times and for better or worse or anything in between, we are certainly living in as a military helicopter flies over my house right now, a very large military. Hello. Yeah. As a giant military copter floats over my house as we speak, things are absolutely interesting. And rather than devolving into, you know, terror or fear or confusion, even though they come up in moments, I think where I'm sitting back in Whitney as as we get close to wrapping up this episode is just being interested and curious and amazed at how wonderful and unpredictable and bizarre all of this is. And that's, I think, I don't know, to me, it takes the terror and the fear out of all of it is just watch, trying to, trying as an observer to just watch it unfold and not feel like I have to be right or explain all of it. I'm just going to like sit back and watch this and like speak up when my heart tells me to speak up, but sitting back and just observing it, I feel like meditation has kind of trained me to do that in a way, you know, not judge the thoughts, not judge what's happening. Just sit back and watch it. And on that subject, Whitney, are, are we are we doing our frequently asked queries? Do we have any of any interesting ones? We prepared? are. Of course, we are. <laughs> silly, silly. Of course, we're doing that. But first, we should do our brand shout out. So, oh, if you right, right, right. Are new to our show or listening to the first episode in a while? Our new format, once we're done on our subject matter, is to shout out some brands that we love. And I have one brand and then something new that I just learned about, which is, I guess, kind of a brand, but a little different. So the first one is Amy's Kitchen. They recently sent me some of their products to try. At least a couple of them were new. Actually, I need to pull up. what There was three separate products that they sent me, and I need to make sure that I get the names right. But the first one, the one that stands out the most to me is their new vegan gluten-free pepperoni pizza. Oh, damn. <laughs> it's so, so good. Like, I was really impressed by it. And it's a meatless pepperoni. The pepperoni itself was fairly good, but I think it was the combination of everything combined. Combination of everything combined. It was the synergy of all the ingredients is what I'm trying to say. And I think they reformulated their crust recently. It just tasted better than any recollection I had of Amy's pizza before. It was just great. I was very impressed. I like Amy's in general. They tend to use high quality ingredients and they're just a company that gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling. They also sent me their tortilla casserole with cheese, also vegan and gluten-free, and their chili mac and cheese. And both of them had beans in them, if I recall. And they were very filling and flavorful. And it it was just so nice to be able to have those foods. And (laughs) they sent them to me. I got them on like, I think it was Friday afternoon. I had one of the dishes for lunch, one of the dishes for dinner, and then one of the dishes for lunch the next day. So within 24 hours, I finished all three. (laughs) (laughs) And previous to receiving those, I was given a shipment of their soups. And that got me hooked on their soups. I will say that the soups are even more exciting because they cost between three to four dollars with mostly, if not entirely organic ingredients, I guess, depending on the soup that you purchase. And they're super handy, pun intended, super handy to have in your home, especially during this time of quarantine because they last a while. And I wasn't a huge soup fan, but 
I got on an Amy's soup kick and find them incredibly satisfying and filling, especially their split pea soup. That's probably my favorite. And they have like two or three different versions. Like one of them is light and sodium. And it's just really satisfying. I would sprinkle on some nutritional yeast and some hot sauce. And sometimes I dip like gluten-free bread in there. And I was very grateful that I was not eating a keto diet because none of these foods are vegan keto friendly, but they just really hit the spot. So that's my big brand shout out. The second one I actually just learned about today and I thought it was so cool. It actually would have been a neat thing to bring up in our recent episode about like ethical consumerism because this is a company that is a mobile app called Mary Field. And I will link to this in the show notes. It just launched today, the day that we're recording. So it's brand new. And it's an app that rewards shoppers for buying everyday products that don't contain artificial junk or unnecessary chemicals. And they have this like comprehensive quality standard of better for you brands. And so I guess I haven't used it yet, but I actually want to go through all my receipts because I think what you do is you scan your receipts in somehow and the app will reward you if you have purchased any brands that they consider high quality. And I don't know what you get in return. Let me look at this. I just got a press release and the press release was from a wonderful PR person that I've known for many years. She's worked with Whole Foods and all these other great brands. And so I was really excited to hear from her. But let's see, what happens? What is your reward that you get? All it says is that you get rewarded. I'm like, well, what do you get in return? I don't know if you get like... Yeah, like let's get specific here. Yeah, I have to go to the website. See, the the one thing with this um, press release that was not 100% evident. It just says... The PR uh, release and the website just keep saying rewards, rewards, but what the heck? Okay. You can redeem your rewards for gift cards from top brands. Ooh, this is actually really cool. You can get gift cards for Airbnb, Whole Foods, REI, a bunch of other stores that I don't shop at, so I'm not going to mention, but they give back to different organizations. Like I guess right now they're focused on No Kid Hungry, which is a organization that helps with ending childhood hunger. So it just sounds really cool. And there's a lot of great brands on there that I certainly purchase, like Beyond Meat is on there. So if you purchase any Beyond Meat. So I'm going to go through all my receipts and just check it out. Califia Farms is on there. Right Rice, which is really great. So Sounds pretty good. How about you, Jason? I was recently introduced to. I wanted really... to know what you thought of Maryfield. <laughs> oh, 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 oh! I think it's a dope concept. Yeah. The idea of rewarding people for ethical, mindful consumerism is is a cool idea. I've never quite seen that before. Yeah, and I actually just continue to click around their website. What's also neat is it's pretty educational. They have um, a watch list on there. Kind of, it reminds me of the. Skin Deep database, which is really great for looking up personal care. And they actually have a food, personal care, and beauty and household section on Mary Field's website where you can go and learn more about certain ingredients and what they consider 
bad for you, good for you, what's prohibited or restricted and why. So you can click on each of the different ingredients and learn more about them. So it's actually very educational. And I think it is going to help me better understand my purchases as well. So I really wish I had known of this a couple of days ago when we did that episode. So hopefully people that listen to that episode listen to this one as well. Maybe we can put it in the show notes of that past episode too so people come across it. All right. So now, Jason, what is the brand or brands that you would like to shout out before we get into the frequently asked queries? Yeah. So a week ago, I was introduced to a really interesting beverage. I'd never heard of this brand. uh, And I'm not saying that because I am the arbiter of all things wellness and health, but Whitney and I both keep up on the industry pretty hardcore. And the brand is called The Bitter Housewife. And they have a bitters. Now dig this. They have a sparkling soda drink. It's called Bitters and Soda. It's uh, zero proof. There's no alcohol, zero calorie, and it's sugar-free. And it's super delicious because it's a very complex combination of uh, cinnamon, sarsaparilla, ginger, and dried cherries. It's really delicious. And I have been really excited to have this because it's spicy and it's complex and it's interesting. And I actually received a case of it from my girlfriend, Laura's mom. And it's a Portland brand. The woman's name is is Genevieve Brazelton. And it's just that's super a, delicious. That's a great name. It's great, right? And Genevieve it's a husband and- Brazelton? Yeah, yeah, Brazelton. And it's her and her husband, Dan. It's a very small, small, super small batch. They're handcrafted in Portland, Oregon. Shout out to Portland. And apparently they've won a bunch of awards. They have aromatic bitters, grapefruit bitters, cardamom bitters, which is one of my favorite spices in the world. And I guess they were also named product of the year by the Specialty Food Association. Shout out to uh, Fancy Food Show. And so I got a case of their their aromatic bitters. Again, big notes of cherry and ginger and cinnamon. And it's fucking delicious, Whitney. Like I put it over ice. Since it is unsweetened, I do add a little bit of either monk fruit or stevia to it. But I freaking love it. It's like I'm not consuming alcohol right now for several reasons, one of which is I've been having a a health situation that does not allow me to drink alcoholic beverages. So to have something like this, I almost feel like it's a treat at the end of the day, you know, after we're podcasting and after business gets done and the things that we do, instead of having a shot of, I don't know what I might normally have, like a Japanese whiskey or something, I just, I kick back with one of these. So big shout out to the Bitter Housewife. If you have not yet tried this, dear listener, see if you can get your hands on it. And I think you'll be really, really satisfied. In fact, Whitney, I'm going to bring you a couple cans because I want to see what you think about it. Thank goodness. I've been waiting for you to say that. I know. I know. I know. (laughs) Well, thank you in advance. I can't wait to try it. Actually, you know, we teased on an episode a while back about you trying a beverage. And I don't know if I told you what it was because we got sent a case of LaCroix of their new flavor. Oh, right, 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 right. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on it after having several cans of it on your recent road trip. I got burnt out on it pretty quickly. Did you really? I did. Yeah. I think because like a lemon, a lemon flavor, like it's a lemoncello, it's not necessarily my favorite flavor profile, lemony, limey stuff. You know, as an example, back in the day, things like Sprite were not my go-to beverage or soda flavor. And so I think things that are generally lemon flavored are not super high on my list of preferred tastes. Well, so I, I think really liked about, it. Did Laura yeah. like it? 
Yeah, she liked it better than I did. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad it didn't go to waste. It did not. And I'm glad I didn't give you the full case of it and that I drank some of it too because I absolutely loved it. I think it's my favorite flavor of LaCroix. So if you are a sparkling water lover and you're not turned off by the lemon-lime flavors as Jason is, then you should give the limoncello. Am I pronouncing it right? Is it limoncello or limoncello? How do you pronounce it, Jason? Uh, If you're Italian, limoncello. Okay. I thought it was fantastic. And I have one more case of it that I'm supposed to give to our LaCroix loving friend. And I'm I'm hoping that she like wants to share it with me because I would love to drink more and I haven't seen it in stores yet. So you might have to go on, on a little LaCroix hunt or look on their website to find specific flavors in order to get your hands on it. And it also could be a limited edition flavor. I have no idea, but we were fortunate enough to get to try it. All right, with no further ado, let's dive into Frequently Asked Queries, our segment in which we read some of the search queries that people type into Google in which they come across our website for the podcast, which is always a a fascinating rabbit hole to dive into. Today, I have a few that I thought could be interesting here. Uh, Number one, I just thought this was funny and This could have been like a tagline, or maybe it will be part of our tagline for this show. The query was, any fool can be uncomfortable. (laughs) Wow, that is so layered. For the listener, you probably don't know this unless you are very, very, very close to us, that Whitney and I have... A term of endearment toward one another where we call each other fool, but we spell it F-U-H-L, like, come on, fool. And also one of my French bulldog, Bella's nicknames is Bakfool, because it sounds like that's what she's saying when she barks. She kind of goes like, Bakfool, 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 when she makes a really weird noise when she barks. Anyway, so the fact that (laughs) someone combined foolishness and uncomfortableness, they're like, wait, who is this? How do they know us so well? It's very meta that they knew that. Any fool can get uncomfortable. What does that mean? Any fool. That is so fun. I don't know what else to say other than that's very, very like inside joke for us, Whitney. I don't know what else to say either. I just thought that you would be amused by that, Jason. And I'm very much so. Again, wish that we could find out why people search what they do, but that's part of the mystery of the universe, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. The next one is interesting. And I'm curious. I bet you don't have the answer to this, Jason, but maybe you do. And as you are guessing the answer, maybe I will look this up. The query was, can two chameleons live together? I have no clue. I was the very fortunate caretaker as a child of a chameleon named Luke the Lizard because I was obsessed with Star Wars and Luke Skywalker. So I remember getting this chameleon, Luke, when I was... Oh God, when did Return of the Jedi come out? I think I was five years old. And so, and he lived a long time. I mean, this chameleon lived, I think, five or six years. And he was ama- He was very sweet. And I remember I had to feed him crickets and mealworms and he would change color. Shout out to Luke the Lizard, whatever form you're in now, brother. Great. It was very fun having a lizard, but I never had a second one. So I do not have the information or acumen to properly answer this question. Well- According to a quick Google search, one person says, the truth is you should never house two or more chameleons together. Why? They much prefer living alone. 
kind of like oh. you, Jason. Yeah, well, alone is relative. I have <laughs> five animals and a girlfriend who visits often, so alone is relative. <laughs> I'm not as much of a hermit as people make me out to be, okay? Even though I have hermitish tendencies, I do. Well, I guess two male chameleons will likely fight with each other over territory, but you might be able to have a male with other female chameleons. Yeah, but that just means baby chameleons are on the way. And do you want a family of chameleons? I mean, that sounds pretty cute to me. A family of chameleons? Yeah. I I suppose if the terrarium is big enough, yeah. So it really depends on the sex, apparently. And that's your answer if you're looking for it. Chameleons are cute. He was very sweet. I used to like take Luke out of his his terrarium and pet him and he would be on my lap and I'd let him run around my room. Wow. That's probably the most unusual companion animal I've had. And did he change color and all that? He did. Whoa. He did. It was very cool. Huh. All right. All right. For a serious query, maybe you do have the answer to this one, Jason. How do I know if my cat is depressed? Uh, I think, first of all, if the cat is demonstrating any behaviors that are sort of out of alignment with typical cat behavior, perhaps if your cat is active and it likes its food and jumps around a lot and is an active cat, if the cat is probably no longer as active and is rejecting its food, it could be sick. But in terms of emotional depression, that's interesting. Like, I'm by no means the most apt source for animal communication. I know there are people like our acquaintance, uh, Sarah Lee, who's here in LA. She's an animal communicator, but I don't know. I think for me on a very basic level, if I notice that my cats are kind of disinterested in playing or cuddling or eating, then I kind of think like, oh, something must not be right with them. I don't know, but this is also a very, what is the word? It's a very anthropomorphic attitude toward other creatures. Like our definition of depression, how the fuck do we know if animals or cats get de- or dogs get depressed? Like that that almost feels to me like we're taking our very specific human understanding of our emotional content and projecting it onto other non-human animals. Right? So how do we know that they even get depressed? Honestly. How do we even know how to accurately assess their emotional content at all? How do we know how they perceive it? You know what I'm saying, Whitney? Like, do dogs and cats get depressed, I think is the better question, not assuming that they do. Well, I don't know because uh, I have not paid that much attention. I I thought that you might have the answer. Question, when you brought up Sarah, you're talking about blonde Sarah that went on the vegan Lux tours with us? Correct. Yeah. I don't think she lives in Los Angeles anymore because she's actually- blown up on TikTok. TikTok. Yeah, I know. I've, I've seen that. And it doesn't that, yeah. look like she's in Los Angeles. Interesting. I haven't followed up with her in a while because COVID. But yet you knew she was on TikTok because I think that all happened during COVID. COVID. I don't know where she lives currently. Probably have to shoot her a DM. But, but I just know that she's one of the first people that come to mind in terms of hiring an animal communicator. Well, I am going to link to her TikTok account where you could reach her and follow her. She does a lot of very entertaining TikToks. Her username is at the veggie Barbie. And she is blonde and beautiful. So perhaps that's where she got her name from. But she will often use her beauty to get across 
interesting messages about a cruelty lifestyle, and I haven't seen much about animal communication. So you mean a cruelty free lifestyle? What did I say? A cruelty you said, lifestyle? Yeah, I was like, I don't think she. <laughs> like, what would that even look like? Cruelty. You lifestyle. know what? When I walk by the ice cream shop, I'm just gonna like slap over the ice cream cones of any kid I see. Ah, like promoting a cruelty lifestyle. Huh. Like just doing all this mean stuff. Just crossing a crosswalk when there's only three seconds left and standing in the middle of the road. There's a million things we could do. I like hearing your definition of what a cruel lifestyle is. <laughs> yeah, of course. The first thing I think is about slapping ice cream cones out of children's hands. Like as if that's the most cruel thing someone can do. Although that is pretty mean. That's pretty mean. Don't fuck with someone else's ice cream. Just don't do it. What a good note to end on, Jason. <laughs> if you are just joining us, dear listener, or uh, you have been with us through 104 episodes, thank you for listening to This Might Get Uncomfortable. As always, Whitney and I appreciate your listenership, your shares, and your reviews on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts. Uh, we really appreciate the feedback that we get from you and you sharing this podcast, whether it's on our Instagram account, our Facebook account, Twitter, Pinterest, or YouTube. We just really, really love your feedback and sharing these episodes with your friends and family, or maybe even your adversaries. We don't know who you're sharing them with. We just appreciate that you do. If you do want to reach out to us directly, we always love receiving emails from you. Our direct email is hello at wellevator.com. And you can always shoot us a direct message again on any of our social media accounts. The handle is at wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And we also have a bunch of free resources on our website from different paid courses you can take to free eBooks and free video trainings that you can access at any time. And we also send out a weekly newsletter that you can subscribe at our website, we send out every Friday a roundup of our podcast episodes and links to any kind of articles or resources that we think may be beneficial for you on your journey toward health and awareness and love and healing and all the things we talk about on This Might Get Uncomfortable. Until next time, sending love from myself and Whitney Lauritsen to you. And yeah, if you guys uh, have any encounters with aliens, uh, hit us up with the videos and that's it. I thought I had a better ending. I don't. We love you. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 